Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Did you know there was something above the heavens? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All sheep and oxen, all beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the seas, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, How majestic is your name in all the earth. Can we say verse 9 together? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's all about God and his majesty this morning. Amen? But it is pretty cool to be human, isn't it? Have you thought about that? What kind of creation did God make us? That we're at the top of his created order here on earth. We're at the top of the food chain. Have you ever thought of that? Genesis chapter 1 and 2 really tie into Psalm chapter 8 and the theme that we're going to be talking about this morning. But God created Adam and Eve, and he put them in charge of and gave them dominion over the garden, didn't he? Their first job, they named all the animals. They cared for the garden. Humanity has been given the opportunity and the responsibility to be a picture of God's royal rule and reign over creation, haven't we? He's allowed us to showcase his image to the rest of creation by having dominion over the plants and the animals. Everything God created in Genesis chapter 1, everything we taste, smell, touch, feel, see, everything. And God has put us at the top of the food chain. How cool is that? And you know, we could step back in pride and say, look at us. Look how far we've come. Look at what we've built with our own hands. And you know, when humanity loses sight of the fact that everything that we get to experience here was created by the Creator, for the Creator, and we're just given a small portion and able to show His image to the world by ruling and reigning over it, when we forget that and we chalk it up to our own achievements and our own accomplishments, mankind loses sight of its purpose And we become like wild, violent beasts. What separates man from animal? Probably not something you started out this morning thinking about, right? Mankind. What did Cain say? Am I my brother's keeper? Is that my responsibility? Does that sound like pride? And then what did Cain do? He became like a violent beast. He killed his brother. You know, oftentimes we refer to sin entering the history of humanity as the fall. And we know that pride came before the fall. 
We know that the Bible says pride always comes before the fall. Have you heard that? Pride comes before the fall. Maybe you can look back and you can think about a time, a season, a habit of pride in your own life where you decided you were going to take things into your own hands, be prideful, and it resulted in an embarrassing fall. Right? You refused to reach the hand that was reached out to you. You said, I got this in my own power. I'm in control. And you slipped and fell flat on your face. I would share one of the umpteen stories that I have, but I know that you're already thinking of a story in your own mind. But I want to tell you the story of John Edward Smith. John Edward Smith is famous for being the captain of the RMS Titanic, which on its maiden voyage struck an iceberg and collapsed. And he's famous for this saying, even God himself couldn't sink this ship. Enough said, right? (laughs) Today we're going to talk about pride, Daniel chapter 4. Let's start in a word of prayer. Father God, I just want to praise you so much that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. Our soul knows it very well. Thank you that you formed us in our mother's wombs. and We are intricately intricately woven and designed by you. God, we thank you so much that everything that we get to experience here, this entire creation is only from your hand. Every blessing, everything we have to be thankful for is only from your hand. None of it is of our own accomplishment or achievement. God, help us to remember that. As we talk about pride today, help us not to point the finger at the person who might be sitting next to us. Help us to evaluate our own mind and heart thoughts, and actions. God, we thank you for who you are today, and it's all about you. In Jesus' name, amen. We left King Nebuchadnezzar. Where was he? Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Uh, Steve pointed out last week a good way to remember it. My way to remember it is my shack, your shack, and a bungalow, (laughs) right? There, it should stick in your mind. So they're in the fiery furnace, a fourth is in the furnace, like unto the Son of God. Jesus shows up in the fire of the furnace, protects the three servants, and now Nebuchadnezzar is praising the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and a bungalow, right? And here's what he does. He says, if you don't obey God and do what he says and worship him alone, then by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin, I'll tear you limb from limb and I'll blow your house down. It's the Bible. Daniel chapter 3, you should read it. (laughs) Whoever said that the Bible was boring? Nebuchadnezzar almost got it. He was so close, wasn't he? God brought him right to this point in his life. He's standing on the precipice. He has the opportunity to say, God, you are God. I am man. I give it all to you. But instead, he flexes his political power like Nebuchadnezzar always does and says, if you don't, then I will. And he takes matters into his own hand. He doesn't give up control. He takes control and he acts in pride. He still struggles with this issue of pride. Then we come to Daniel chapter 4, which is where we'll spend the majority of our time in this sermon today. This is an edict straight from the mouth of King Nebuchadnezzar in his own language to all peoples and nations and languages across the land. And it's important to note at this point, 
little piece of trivia for you. Not that it's trivial, it's important, but this is a little note for you. The Bible was recorded in predominantly two languages. The Old Testament, the first 39 books that make up the Bible, were recorded predominantly in the language of Hebrew. The New Testament, the final 27 books that make up the Bible, were recorded predominantly in Koine Greek, the language of the people. In the fullness of time, God sent his son. The Roman Empire was ruling and reigning. One political power, all roads lead to Rome. One language. It was a great time in history for the gospel to spread, but that's the story in and of itself. And then parts of the Bible are recorded in Aramaic. Syriac, Aramaic. This is the language of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is the language that Daniel chapter 4 is recorded in. These are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. We're about to step into the mind and thoughts and perspective of the most powerful man on earth in 580-570 BC. Sound good? You with me? I haven't lost you yet, have I? Okay. I'll check in a little later. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. Let's just pause there for a moment. That sounds like the Christmas message right there, isn't it? Peace unto you. Good tidings, glad tidings, great joy for all the people. Peace, Emmanuel, God with us. Peace between God and man. Peace unto you. You know what these people who are reading this, who this edict was sent out to, do you know what they're probably thinking? This is kind of weird. The last time we saw old Neb, he was knocking down the door of our city, taking our women, taking our children, taking us slaves, conquering the city. It wasn't necessarily peace be unto you. I think Nebuchadnezzar has had a change of heart. Verse 2, it has seemed good to me, Nebuchadnezzar, to show the signs and wonders that the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation and on and on forever. Can we just think about the captor of God's people, one of the most evil, most powerful men in 585-70 BC. He just told everybody to bow down to his idol or I'll throw you in the furnace. Bow down to the true God, or I'll tear you limb from limb and I'll knock your house down. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar is publishing his testimony of faith in God. How incredible is that? Think about that. It's like Kanye West putting out his new gospel album, Jesus is King. And he was asked in an interview, why did you call it Jesus is King? And he said, because Jesus is King except times a million. This is Nebuchadnezzar publishing his testimony of faith in God. Think about this. You know, a month ago we talked about Habakkuk. You remember that? Habakkuk saying, God, why do you let all this evil happen? What are you going to do? When are you going to show up? And God says, I am doing a work. I am working behind the scenes. I have a plan in place. Things are happening that if I were to tell you, your mind wouldn't be able to comprehend it. But I'll tell you anyway, I'm raising up the Babylonians. You remember that? Now look at where we're at in the story. Nebuchadnezzar, leader of the Babylonians, who's taken God's people captive, is now publishing a decree to all people, all nations, all languages, that he's bowing the knee to the Most High God. Is anything too hard for God? 
is any situation that you carried in here today out of God's control to turn around? Think about this. Just a speculative thought. Here's a principle, a little application. Your story of faith is a powerful tool in God's hands. If you have the courage to share your story of faith in Jesus Christ, then God's power, who knows where it could take that? Who knows how many lives and hearts it could change? Nebuchadnezzar is publishing his story of faith. The creature bowed down before its creator. You know, pride can keep us from sharing our story of faith, can it? I mean, what else is stopping us? You tell somebody about Jesus, they're probably not going to punch you in the face unless you have history. Our country is not that far gone that they're going to throw you in jail. They're probably not going to come and take your family in the night. What is stopping us from telling people about Jesus? It's pride, isn't it? How's this going to affect me? What are these people going to think about me? How's this going to make me look? What's this going to do to my reputation? Are they going to treat me differently? It's thinking about me. Here's a definition of pride. A deep sense of pleasure in your own achievements. You ever had a deep sense of pleasure in your own achievements? Hey, let me tell you what I did. Thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. I think that's how the Bible puts it. Thinking of yourself first. First place. It's selfishness. For the king of Babylon to publish the story we're about to read with all of its embarrassing details, he must have had his pride fall. Chapter 4, verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. Now I want you to pretend with me just for a second. Close your eyes, think about this. You're Nebuchadnezzar, you're at ease and prospering in your palace. Whatever you want, whatever you want to eat, whatever you want to be entertained by, new inner tires on the car, a new car, why not? Chauffeur for the car, garage for all three of them. I don't know who the three imply, but anything you want at the snap of your finger, all rule, all control, you can summon anyone you want, you can accomplish anything you want. That's the reality that Nebuchadnezzar lives in. And I assume that's not the reality that any of us live in today. You cannot snap your fingers or twinkle your nose like that character on TV used to do. You remember that? What was that? I guess we shouldn't talk about that in church, should we? <laughs> I just picture Nebuchadnezzar's music video like he's dancing to Megan Trainor's song. If I was you, I'd want to be me too. Have you heard that? <laughs> Ridiculous song. Think about the ease, that term ease. When life is easy, you better watch out. At ease in his own palace. There's no more wars. There's no more conflict. He's conquered everybody. He's just sitting at the top of the world at ease. I think about King David at a time when kings should have been going to war. He stayed in his palace, enjoying his palace, got himself in trouble, flexed his political power, ended up murdering somebody. Here's Nebuchadnezzar at ease and prospering. Prosperity is a picture of green leaves flourishing, flush Lush foliage. There you go. Say that 10 times fast. I just picture like this big tree 
and all of this greenery, and, and what do we mean when we say green today? You got the green. Money, right? Prosperity, power, fame, fortune. He's enjoying his ease and his prosperity in his palace. I want you to think about that. That term prosperity is the same word that's used in Jeremiah to describe the tree that's planted by the waters. Prosperity, lush foliage. This is probably a stretch from our story today, but the principle is true and it's biblical, so I want to say it. Character and competency. Character is who you truly are, your integrity, your faithfulness, your values. Competency are your skills, your resumes, your titles, the offices that you hold. Character trumps competency every time. If you lose your character, you lose it all. If you lose your competency, you still have your character, which is a great foundation to build from. If you lose your character, then building your competency is like the foolish man who built his house in the sand. And when the waters came, his stack of accomplishments and credentials and achievements, they all got washed away. When that fraud was exposed, the career was gone. When that unfaithfulness was exposed, her relationship was gone. Character trumps competency every time. Character is humbly and faithfully following God with your whole heart. Competency is stacking up your achievements. It's pride. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. He was stacking up his accomplishments, his competencies, his skills, his resumes. Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Are you ready for this? Verse 9. He's talking to... Oh, I skipped a part here. Let's go back to verse 7. Whoa, let's go back to verse 5. I'm getting so far ahead of myself. Nebuchadnezzar says, I saw a dream. It made me afraid. You know, my son's at a point where he wants us to check under the beds before he goes to sleep. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is having a nightmare. As I lay in bed, fancies and visions and sugar plum fairies danced in my head. No, that's not what it says. I just got Christmas on the brain. As I lay in my bed, the fancies and visions of my head alarmed me. Verse 6, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. We've seen this in the book of Daniel time and time again. A bad dream, an interpretation. You might remember Joseph in Egypt in the prison dreams and interpretation. Then he's called before Pharaoh. I've had a dream. Here's its interpretation. Seven years of famine. Let's stock up now. He puts Joseph in charge. Do you remember? Steve was telling us that his dreams are crazy. Supernatural. Like he can do stuff in his dreams. I don't know, fly, whatever, that he can't do in real life. My dreams are boring. I don't know what that says about me. If there's a therapist or a counselor in the room, maybe we can talk later. But I keep having this recurring dream. The same thing over and over again. And I've heard other pastors say this, actually. It might be, you know, something to do with our, I was going to say profession, but it's not a profession, our calling. I keep having this recurring dream where I show up somewhere to speak and I'm unprepared. It's like my worst fear. Like uh, three weeks ago, I had to speak. What did I speak on? I spoke on um, Ezekiel three weeks ago, you remember? So that night, I had a dream, and I told a few people this, that I showed up 
at this massive church, bigger church than I've ever been invited to speak at, and I had to give the announcements, and I didn't know what the announcements were. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to kind of fumble through this and play off the crowd. It's going to be terrible. And then I realize I'm sitting next to Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Those are my dreams. They're brutal. <laughs> Nightmare. Maybe I've invited you too far into my world, but that's, that's where I live. But I've been thinking about dreams, and the Bible says a lot about dreams. Daniel says a lot about dreams. Joseph talked a lot about dreams. There were dreams and interpretation. I don't know a lot about dreams. I'm not an expert on dreams. I don't even know what you call an expert on dreams. I've watched a TED Talk. I heard a speech in middle school. I've read whatever dreams there are in the Bible. I don't know a lot about dreams. But can I say something about dreams? after that little caveat. If you feel as though you've had a dream and God is speaking to you through that dream and you're thinking, what is going on here? And you keep getting this dream and it feels like it means something to you. I'm not up here this morning discrediting that. I don't think there's any benefit in me trying to do that. What I want to say is I want to give you this caution. Most dreams are just your overactive subconscious because you've ate too much pizza late at night. That's what my theology professor used to say. It's just the pizza talking. But if you have had a dream and you're thinking, man, there was something different about this. It was so real. It speaks right to where I'm at right now. Here's what to do from the Bible. You ready? Ask God first. If it doesn't line up with who God is or what God says in the scripture, then you take that dream, you crumple it up, and you throw it out. It's no good anymore. God is never going to lead you to do something that goes against who he is or what he says in the word of God. Is that fair? If it does line up with who God is and what he says in his word, then ask some trusted friends who can encourage you in Christ. Is that fair? We could talk about dreams all day, but let's move on. Verse 7. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, they all came in. And I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Can you just hear the king? What do I pay you for? I should just have you thrown in the furnace, thrown in the lion's den. They couldn't do anything. Verse 8. At last, don't miss that. Finally, at last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream. Daniel came in last. We're about to find out in the next verse that we read that he is the chief of this group of wise men. He is in charge. He's been put in charge, just like Joseph was put in charge when he talked to Pharaoh. Daniel's put in charge when he talks to Nebuchadnezzar. So why did he come in last? Humility, isn't it? That's the only thing I can come up with. Why wouldn't he run in first? Oh, I interpreted the last dream for Nebuchadnezzar. I'll interpret this dream too. I'll save all these guys' heads. I'll go in first. I'll put myself first. Look at what I've done. Look what I've done last time. You know, I'm going to jump in here first this time, but he comes in last. That's humility, isn't it? He encourages everybody else to take their shot. Now it's Daniel's turn. Everybody else has failed. The wisest man, men in the most powerful country, probably the wisest men in the world at that time that Nebuchadnezzar had access to, they've all failed. Now it's up to you, Daniel. No pressure. You did it before. I'm sure you can do it again. No pressure, buddy. Let's see how you do here. 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Verse 9. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, that's Daniel, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in my bed, sugar plum fairies dancing in my head were these. I saw and behold a tree, a tree. I don't even need to bring my props this morning. They're already here. Wow. And its height was great. A tree in the midst of the earth. Its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its top reached to heaven. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Sounds like the Tower of Babel, doesn't it? Man's prideful attempt at trying to reach God. Verse 12. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit was abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens lived in its branches. All flesh was fed from it. You know, the king must have realized at some point, that's a picture of me. Think about the picture. This big, tall trunk that's firmly founded in the earth. The Babylonians had conquered all. There was nobody else to conquer. They were fixed there. Nobody else could throw them off their pedestal. Think about the leaves, lush leaves, the prosperity, the opportunity, the industry. Think about all the birds that found shelter. Think about all the beasts of the earth that found shade underneath. In times of heat, in times of famine, people would run to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar was in control. And then here's the thing I want to point out. I don't know if you noticed it. I didn't notice it. A Bible commentator pointed it out to me. It's the only tree in the picture, isn't it? It's the only tree. It just says, behold a tree in the midst of the earth. There's no other tree mentioned. No little trees, no deciduous trees. Is that the right term? No, that's the evergreen. Deciduous is when the leaves... Never mind. There's no other trees, no other bushes, no forest. It's all by itself. And you've probably seen a big tree, how it grows its roots out, its leaves above, and nothing can grow under it because it's sucking all the sun, sucking all the water, taking all the resources. Nothing grows under it. Think about this picture of pride. What an illustration. Pride separates itself. Pride isolates itself. Pride tears other people down to build itself up. And all the while it looks like success, like climbing the ladder. But when you get to the top, you figure out it's lonely at the top. You can hear life story after life story of celebrity after celebrity who finally got that fame and fortune and realized... What good is it to be the biggest tree if there's no other trees to share it with? What, what good is it to be the best if there's nobody else around to enjoy it with? Pride separates. Pride isolates. If we focus on ourselves so much, we don't focus on anyone else, do we? Selfishness. The biggest tree and the only tree. Nebuchadnezzar's tree is standing all alone. Maybe that's how you feel today. How come nobody talks to me anymore? Maybe it's because all you do is talk about yourself. Maybe it's because you're a competitive conversationalist. And no matter what story people give, you have a story that trumps their story. Right? You ever talk to someone like that? You're just so excited to tell this story. Oh, well, yo, that's good for you. But what me, let me tell you what I did. And then nobody wants to talk to you anymore. 
How come I don't get invited to people's events anymore? Well, maybe it's because you make the entire event about yourself and the tray of goodies that you bring has to be better than everybody else's and the craft that you bring to the Christmas whatever has to be better than everybody else's and you make it all about you, you, you. Where are my friends? I used to have friends. Maybe your friends got tired of doing what you wanted to do, eating where you wanted to eat, going to where you wanted to go, shopping at the stores that you wanted, and on and on and on. It's like that country song. I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, my, me, my. (laughs) To go something like that. I've got songs on the brain. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, Josh. I am so glad that you are saying this message this morning. This has been on my heart. And when this message comes out on YouTube, I'm going to get the link and I'm going to send it to my sister because she really needs to hear this. But now you can't do that because she'll know that I just called you out. But it's for all of us, isn't it? The moment that you say, I don't really struggle with this, this isn't a message for me, indicates the fact that you do struggle with this and this is a message for you. Or is that too cyclical of thinking? Verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in my bed. Behold, a watcher, a holy one, likely an angel, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree. Lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves. And scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Pride comes before the fall. I couldn't find my axe this morning, but I would have brought it. Pride comes before the fall. And you know, it's been said, the bigger the tree, the harder they fall, right? You know, the Titanic wasn't the only ship to strike an iceberg and sink. Did you know there are lists and lists of ships that you can find online? I found one this morning dated all the way back to 1828, struck an iceberg and sank. But the reason we focus on the Titanic was it was the biggest, it was the most luxurious, it had the most passengers, it had the most casualties. Over 1,500 people died in that terrible accident. That's why we focus on it, because the bigger the tree, the harder they fall. Nebuchadnezzar is a big tree and he's going to fall hard and it's going to affect a lot of people verse 15 but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field let him be wet with the dew of heaven let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth wasn't mankind made to be above the beast now nebuchadnezzar is going to be lowered to be one of the beasts Verse 16, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. Let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision of the word of the holy ones to the end, that all the living may know that the most high rules. God rules. I feel like that would be a good title for today's message. God rules. The end of the most high rules. The kingdom of men. He gives it to whom he will, and he sets over it the lowliest of men. That must have been like a kidney shot to old Nebuchadnezzar. He sets over it the lowliest of men. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, 
Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of the kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. No pressure, Daniel. Verse 22. Daniel interprets the dream. He's talking about the tree. Verse 22. It is you, O king. I feel like Nebuchadnezzar already knew that. You have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown. It reaches up to heaven. Your dominion to the ends of the earth. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. Verse 23. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, an angel coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree, destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king, that you should be driven from among men, your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, not above the beasts of the field. They're no longer going to find shelter under your tree. Your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew from heaven. Seven periods of time shall pass over you, seven years, till you know that the most high rules. The kingdom of men gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. I feel like that's something that used to be said in the 90s. You rule. Heaven rules. God rules. Here's the interpretation. Heaven has swung the axe. Heaven has got out the pruning shears and lopped off your branches. Heaven has got out the rake and swept up all your green leaves. And heaven has brought out the basket and gathered all your fruit. And it's gone. A foolish man built his house on the sand. And when the winds came and the rains came and the water rose, his house was washed away. It was all gone. But Daniel gives hope. Haven't we been seeing that in the minor prophets? Judgment, but always with hope. Always with a touch of hope. Whatever you're going through today, there is hope, and his name is Jesus. Here's Daniel's advice, verse 27. I believe this is advice for any of us who are struggling with pride, which I would suggest we all struggle with touches of pride. Verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my counsel, my advice, my wisdom, here's my suggestion, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Please don't kill me for what I'm about to say. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. Bend down and help the people below you before you're chopped down. Willingly step down out of your pride and help those beneath you before you're chopped down unwillingly. Showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. If you struggle with pride, that's Daniel's advice to you. Focus on righteousness and then focus on the people around you who are oppressed who need you. Set your mind on things above and then speak the truth in love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and spirit and then love your neighbor as yourself. 
get our eyes off ourselves and instead choose to look up and choose to look below, but don't focus on us. Get your focus off of yourself. Get it onto God and his rescue mission for people through Jesus. That's the antidote for pride. For King Nebuchadnezzar, that lasted 12 months. Because whenever you make a decision based on emotion, on fear, whenever you're motivated by fear, it's only going to last so long. For Nebuchadnezzar, it lasted 12 months. Daniel chapter 4, verse 29. At the end of 12 months... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon, a similar spot to where King David would have been walking when he got himself in trouble. Verse 30, the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty, you know, my dad pointed this out. What's the middle letter in the word pride? I, right? I, me, my. Pride is when my thoughts are predominantly about me. It's selfishness. It's the root of all sin. When we get our eyes off of God and we get our eyes stuck on ourselves, selfishness, it's pride. And the devil knew that that's where he could convince Eve. You take it. You eat it. Your eyes will be open. You will be like God. Selfishness at the root of all sin. Pride. The most powerful king on earth at that time. Verse 31. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. Seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 33, immediately the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar because God always keeps his promises. He was driven from among men. He ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. The most powerful king on earth at the time lost his mind and became like a hairy wild beast, eating grass, growing claws. Pride comes before the fall. And can I suggest, if the most powerful king could fall, then we should take note, shouldn't we? Because what do we have to stand on if not for Christ? 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Maybe you're still thinking at this point in the message that this isn't really a message for me today. I'm not so stuck on myself. I don't really struggle with pride. Let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's a pretty cautionary verse, isn't it? Here's a thought that I had, and I've often wondered. What do you think they did with Nebuchadnezzar when he lost his mind and thought he was an animal? Do you think they put him on a leash? Do you think they put him in a dog cage? Do you think they let him roam around the palace gardens inside the wall, eating the rose bushes, rolling in the grass? 
Do you think he got out over the wall and he actually lived with wild animals in the woods somewhere and they couldn't find him because it says that uh, his magistrates and people sought him out. Maybe they had to find him. Do you think maybe he climbed the highest mountain and he found a little cave like the Grinch and he hid in there with his crazy grumpy self? Uh, Albert Barnes is a really smart man who studied through the Bible and he says, there's some probability from the passage in Daniel 4.15 which says, leave the stump of its roots in the earth even with a band of iron and brass that potentially Nebuchadnezzar was secured in the manner in which maniacs have often been. And that in his rage, he was carefully guarded from all danger of injuring himself. He is the king, after all. He was the most powerful man on the planet in 580, 570 BC. Surely they're going to take care of him. Surely they're not just going to let him go run wild. I just want to embrace this imagery for a moment. This should caution us in our pride. I want to read a few excerpts from the second annual report of the Prison Discipline Society in Boston, Massachusetts from 19th century. In case it's been a while since you've read this, let me read some excerpts from this. It might be good bedtime reading, I'm not sure. No, it, it wouldn't be, and you'll find out why as I read it here. But keep in mind, in New England in the 19th century, things weren't great, but they must have been more humane than Babylon in 500 BC, right? What we're about to read should have been better conditions for people who have lost their mind and are struggling with mental illness than what we're reading about in ancient Babylon, right? You would think. So here it goes. In Massachusetts, by an examination made with care, about 30, and they call them lunatics, which is not politically correct. I am so glad that mental illness and mental health is a part of the conversation today. We don't have all the answers. We don't have all the support, but it's growing and increasing, and at least it's out there in the conversation. Here's what it was like in 19th century in New England. About 30 lunatics have been found in prison. In one prison were found three, another five, another six, another ten. It's a source of great complaint with the sheriffs and jailers that they must receive such persons because they have no suitable accommodations for them. Do you think Babylon had suitable accommodations for such people? People who are struggling with mental illness like this? Listen to this. Of those last mentioned, one was found in an apartment in which had been nine years. He had a wreath of rags around his body, another around his neck. This was all his clothing. He had no bed, no chair, no bench. He had two or three rough planks which were strewed about the room. A heap of filthy straw like the nest of swine was in the corner, and he had built a bird's nest of mud in the iron grate of his den. In the prison of five lunatics, there were confined in separate cells, which were almost dark dungeons. It was difficult after the door was opened to see them distinctly, and the ventilation was so incomplete that more than one person on entering them has found the air so fetid as to produce nausea and almost vomiting. The old straw in which they were laid and their filthy garments were such as to make their insanity even more hopeless. And then finally, listen to this. Think about King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man on the planet, 580, 570 BC. Another in the same prison was found in a plank apartment of the first story where he had been eight years. During this time, he had never left the room but twice. The door of his apartment had not been opened in 18 months. 
The food was furnished through a small orifice in the door. The room was warm by no fire, and still the woman of the house said he'd never froze. As he was seen through the orifice of the door, the first question was, is that a human being? The hair was gone from one side of his head. His eyes were like balls of fire. Probably not bedtime reading, right? But that sounds pretty hopeless, doesn't it? I mean, we don't have everything figured out today, but at least mental illness, mental health are part of the conversation. And these people are being treated more and more like human beings, thank goodness. Imagine Nebuchadnezzar, claws like an eagle, hair like feathers, eating grass, soaking wet. And he used to be the most powerful tree on the face of the earth. Watch what happens. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High God, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isn't that a miracle? Just think about those stories that I read from New England in the 19th century. What if one of those people in those dire circumstances woke up one day and their mind was returned? And they cleaned up the straw, they cleaned up the bird's nest they had made, they got themselves clothed, they washed the walls, and they knocked on the door and said, my mind has returned. I'm ready to enter back into society. Wouldn't that be a miracle? This is even more a miracle. Watch what happens next. Verse 36. At the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Who is going to trust somebody who for seven years thought they were an animal and lived like an animal and is now reestablished as the most powerful person on earth in 585, 70 BC? Who's going to trust them with the power, with the armory, with the finances, with the political control? It's a miracle. Verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. He went through seven years of insanity. And he's saying of God, all his ways are right. And he is just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's our theme for this morning, isn't it? So where do we see Jesus in the story as we finish off this morning? One of the things we're pointing out on this three-year journey through the Bible is that all of Scripture is a story about God's rescue mission for humanity in the face of Jesus Christ who died for our sins and was raised again to secure our salvation. That's the story of Scripture, God's redemption plan for humanity. So where do we see Jesus in the story? What does Jesus have to say about pride and humility? How did he exemplify it? I want to look at the Apostle Paul's letter to Philippi the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2. Verse 3 says this, 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Don't tear others down to build yourself up. Build others up. Encourage one another. Admonish one another. Build other people up. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What are the needs of the people around you? Verse 5, having this mind among yourselves, which I love. Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind. Paul says to have this mind. This is a choice. This is something we need to work at. This is not something that comes naturally. This is something that we need to focus on. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's only through Jesus that pride is defeated. Verse 6, who, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus was at the top. Jesus is at the top. He's the creator. He's the stainer. He's omnipotent God. He doesn't need to reach for it. He doesn't need to try and grasp it. He's there. He is the great I am. Nebuchadnezzar tried to work his way up. He tried to build his tree higher, his tower taller. Jesus is at the top. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Verse 8. Being found in human form, he went even lower. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And he went even lower. Even death on a cross. You see how Jesus willingly steps down and down and down. And Nebuchadnezzar in his pride, he had to be unwillingly knocked down and down. Jesus willingly stepped down for you and for me. He embraced our humanity. He lived a perfect sinless life and he died on a tree. He died on the prideful tree that Nebuchadnezzar spent so long building up and all those sinful accomplishments. Jesus died on that tree. Nebuchadnezzar's tree was knocked down. Jesus raised up that tree and died on it willingly for you and for me. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, even the most powerful man who walked the face of the earth in 585-70 BC. Have you made that confession? Have you come to the point where you've realized, I'm not in control? I'm not at the top of the world. Even if I were, I could be knocked down. Pride comes before the fall. Have you made the decision and the realization and confessed with your lips and made a decision in your heart that, God, I give you control? I'm not in control anyway. I give you control. And give your all, your entire life, to God the Father through Jesus Christ because he submitted and humbled himself even to the place where you and I should have been hanging on that cross for our sin. Jesus stepped all the way down into our punishment and took it in our place so that through faith and trust in him, we wouldn't have to face that same punishment. And instead, he could give us the gift of eternal life. I want to do something today. If you're realizing this morning that pride is something that I struggle with and I need to make a decision, would you just stand up as we close in prayer? If today you're going to say that pride is my struggle, I need to stand, I need to declare this, I believe when you make 
a physical change, a physical choice. When you stand up here now, you are signifying to God and the people around you, and you are signifying in your own heart that pride is no longer going to be a part of my story. Can you stand with me as we close in prayer? I'm standing here on stage, but I'm standing as somebody who struggles with pride as well. Why don't we close in prayer? Father God, I just want to praise you so much for who you are, for what you've done for us. God, we confess we don't have it all together. God, like Nebuchadnezzar, we've tried to stack our achievements. We've tried to find our value in all the things that we've accomplished. We've even grabbed other people's attention and said, look at what I've accomplished. We've wasted conversations and we've wasted days working and focusing and talking about us. But God, today, help us to make the change, to make the choice that we would go into the rest of this day and into this week and into the Christmas season thinking about others. When was the last time that we have truly thought about somebody else? Not just what we could borrow from them, what we could get from them. And God, I have to confess, I oftentimes have an agenda in the back of my mind when I do something good for someone else. God, help me to do it purely out of love and honor and worship and reverence for who you are and for what you've blessed us with. God, we thank you so much that you are at the top of it all. Jesus, that you are the name above every other name. Jesus, we thank you for dying on that cross for us, for taking that punishment, for humiliating and humbling yourself. We think of the shame and the embarrassment, the nakedness, the pain, the mental anguish that you went through as you were separated from the Father in our place, taking the punishment of our sin, our mistakes, our wrongdoing, our poor choices. Jesus, we thank you so much. God, if there are any here who have not made that decision to pass it all over to you, to make you the Lord of their life and to accept the sacrifice of your son for the forgiveness of their sins, God, I pray that they would do that today. Your spirit willing and working. We praise you, God, in this time. We thank you for the food we're going to enjoy, for the time together. Thank you so much that we are a family. As Steve mentioned this morning, that when we trust Christ as Savior, we're in the family of God. God, we thank you for these people who are here. We thank you that our motto is to share the journey, that we're not designed to be alone, to be a prideful tree, sucking the life and resources from everybody else. Help us to share the journey. God, we thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Father. It's in your name we pray. Amen.